The Tom Woods Show, episode 1648. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you enjoy the Tom Woods Show, it's time to go to the next level. And next level Tom Woods is libertyclassroom.com. This is where my friends and I teach all the stuff you did not get in your conventional education, history, economics, and more, the way it ought to be taught with all the content they left out or distorted. Check it out at libertyclassroom.com. Hey, everybody, Tom Woods here. I'm with Jeff Deist, president of the Mises Institute. He's going to help me think through something I've been wondering about. I could have done this episode by myself. And I thought, eh, that sounds like too much work. But more than that, maybe I'm going to overlook something important. And Jeff's going to help me. The main question I want to answer, and I think there's a lot that can be said on this, is why it is that the response to this pandemic is coming down so much along ideological lines. You can find some exceptions here and there. But by and large, you find people on one side of the spectrum, I don't even like to use the word spectrum, but you know what I mean. You know, a certain type of person is saying we need lockdowns and more lockdowns and we need public health experts and we need to sit and listen to what they say. And then we have other people saying this is not what should happen and this is an overreaction and the cult of expertise is doing more harm than good even though in principle you do generally listen to to experts, but you don't make a fetish out of it when you're asking, in effect, too much of them, as you are in this case. So I want to know why that should be. And I know that there's problems with left and right, and you know maybe they're not as meaningful as they used to be, but I don't think they're meaningless. I don't think they're altogether meaningless. I think they do indicate something, especially given that people who self-identify, it's not me labeling them, it's them themselves labeling themselves, they identify in certain ways are collectively coming down on this in a particular way. And you wouldn't have guessed that. I mean, now as it's turned out, you might see that it works out that way, but you wouldn't necessarily have guessed that it would come out that way. You might've thought that the opinion on how to handle this would be distributed more randomly across people of different philosophical backgrounds. So I just find this an interesting question to explore. And Jeff, you have been recruited to be my I don't want to say lab rat, but I don't know, crash test dummy. I'm not really sure what you are here, but but you and I are going to try and work together to, to understand this. So uh, welcome back and thanks for doing it. Sure, absolutely. Good to be here. All right, so let's try and start with this. I have several theories as to why this, this would be, but when I pose the question, you see that it's a legitimate question. It's a real phenomenon. What's your gut reaction about it? It's not just a real phenomenon. It's a stark phenomenon people's perception of the COVID danger and people's reaction to the shutdown is runs very neatly along partisan lines. That's red state, blue state, conservative, liberal, urban, rural, you know, all those familiar divides. And I think it's intensified by the fact that this happens to be an election year, a national election year. And I think it's doubly intensified by the fact that Trump is such a polarizing figure, uh, especially on the left. I saw an email earlier today, Tom, where Someone's writing, I can't wait to see Trump swept out of office and see his tears on election night. I can't wait to see right after the inauguration is over in January and Biden is installed, uh, Trump will be led away in handcuffs and taken to jail. Uh, But, you know, even when those glorious moments come, we're still going to have Trump guilt for this email said centuries, not even decades, but centuries, just like the German people 
will have collective guilt uh, forever and ever over Nazi atrocities in World War II. So if you have this perception of Donald Trump, you know, up until this COVID stuff, I don't think Trump was any more or less fascist or authoritarian than Obama. And frankly, I think George W. Bush was probably more fascist than Donald Trump. So the idea that he's an existential threat to America, that these other previous presidents were not, and that he it differs in, from them in, in quality, not just quantity, I think is wrong. But nonetheless, there is a significant cohort of our population, maybe that's 20, 30 percent, maybe even more, who believe that Donald Trump is something beyond the pale, an existential threat to America. People like Robert De Niro, for example, to, to pick someone famous because he was on with Colbert the other, I think just recently talking about this. So when you get into that level of hatred and contempt for Donald Trump, and more importantly, really, Trump's just an avatar for the people who voted for him and support him. That's what's really at play here. Then it starts to make a lot of sense. And I certainly don't think anyone wished this COVID tragedy upon us. I don't think it was engineered by China or anybody else. And I don't think that uh, Democrats are happy about the loss or the left in general. The, the pro-lockdowners are happy about the destruction of the economy that's resulting from this. But I do think that they might enjoy what it's doing to Trump. And they might, as a matter of fact, for nothing other than partisan political gain, want to keep it going a little while longer, even with the hardship that it's creating. I don't put that beyond people because politics is a pretty ugly business. I would say politics is is applied bad will. It's all that, all that ill will for people you see, let's say, in the Twitter sphere. Uh, well, that becomes actualized and made concrete in politics. Politics today is about vanquishing people. And that's certainly what the 2020 election is about. It's about vanquishing uh, Trump America and rubbing their, not just rubbing their nose in it, but actively harming them politically. And so if you, if you think about it in those kinds of terms, then maybe it makes more sense. And, and I'll just conclude this thought with this, is that from my perspective, the overwhelming burden of proof lies with the lockdowners. In other words, if you're going to come along and say, we have to shut down businesses, which we've never done in any uh, uh, pandemic in the past, we're going to confine and quarantine healthy people, not just sick people, but healthy people to their homes, again, unprecedented. And this is going to cause in a matter of months, you know, a 25 or 35 percent drop in GDP. It's going to cause 40 million new unemployment claims. It's going to wipe out all the job creation, so-called that's happened since the 2008 crisis, the last crisis, and it's going to potentially at least risk the Great Depression, then yeah, the burden of proof is on the people who, even if there's 50 or 100,000 deaths, to say, no, 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 this is justified because we can't have anyone dying. I mean, obviously, we all understand that the shutdown is going to cause lots and lots of deaths, lots and lots of illness, lots and lots of poverty, and not just in America, around the world. So, that, that's where the burden of proof lies. So that's, that's what is so, I guess, aggravating for me about the lockdowners is they, they're the ones who ought to be explaining, not those of us who think that this is an overreaction. And I think that's where this is coming down. This is, this is the, why it's so nakedly partisan, I think. Well, there's definitely partisanship uh, in it. Uh, it's definitely a Trump and anti-Trump thing. There's, there's definitely that. I found it interesting. I've, there's an article... Let me make a note to myself to link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1648 
over on the Heterodox Academy website, which is Jonathan Haidt's thing where you have professors who are not necessarily right-wingers by any means, but who in some way dissent from the mainstream in academia. And there's an article there about a study that was done to try to figure out the root causes of why there is this divide between people who call themselves conservatives and people who call themselves liberals when it comes to the pandemic. And one theory was that, well, liberals tend to live in the places that have been hit the hardest. So because they have this experience with the virus, that's going to have more of an impact on them and, and than it on them than it would be on somebody in Montana who doesn't even know anybody who's had the virus. You know, so there's that. So they went and they they looked at it, and they have these very stunning charts showing, uh, comparing the extent to which ideology versus experience is coloring where people are coming down on it. And it's overwhelmingly ideology. It does not actually boil down to, well, these people have experienced the virus more than these people. It's overwhelmingly an ideological thing. So I wonder if it, is there also a part of this that there's a kind of scientism on the left where, I mean, obviously, look, where would I be without science, right? My whole life revolves around the internet. I mean, the way I make my living, the way I get uh, everything, it's, it all, so obviously I'm not against science, but I am against making a fetish out of science or thinking that the only questions that matter in life are ones that can be answered quantitatively, which is what science is doing. Uh, there are qualitative questions in life. I mean, yes, you can tell me how I can physically prolong, you know, I can prolong my biological existence, but the more philosophical question of, well, but is mere biological existence what we think of as being a flourishing life is not something you can answer by looking in a test tube or, or, or weighing something on a scale. And yet I think with the left, there's this sense, well, at least the Maybe not. Maybe there are some people on the hard left who are smart enough to see through this, but the mainstream left liberals and the mainstream libertarians tend to want to look at the establishment as being, well, maybe they're a little bit wrong about this or that, but their hearts are in the right place and they have a lot of expertise. And we probably ought to just, you know, we don't want to be kooks and crazies, so we ought to defer to what they say. But they're going way beyond what a, an expert could legitimately say. An expert could say, this is how we think this disease spreads from one person to another. This is this is here's here's the activity we think describes the the virus. But an expert, obviously, there's no expert who can tell you there will be more damage to you if you continue to go about your life than there will be if you shut everything down. There's no expert who can tell you that. That's a value judgment about what what the meaning of life is. But we're, we're basically being told that if we even want to have that discussion, we want to kill our grandmothers. I think that is a classic left scientism uh, fetish going on. Yes, and even if infectious disease specialists had a crystal ball and they could have accurately predicted how viral this is, how lethal it is, how it's transmitted, all things which we, about which we still don't know, by the way. Uh, even if they did have a crystal ball, it would still be their job to present us with this information, not to uh, tell us what our response ought to be. So those are two different things, very different things, by the way. And when you bring up the grandma killer, I noticed yesterday, there's a woman I follow on Twitter named Bethany S. Mandel. Um, and she's a conservative writer. She's got a pretty good Twitter follower. And anyway, she had put something out saying like, well, I'm not ready to to say you have no pediatricians or general doctors or physical therapists or zoos or aquarium or 
schools or restaurants or caterers or gyms or summer camps. You know, you can you can uh, stay at home if you want. You can call me a grandma killer if you want, but I'm not sacrificing all of this. You stay at home if you like. So, you know, sort of garden variety stuff, but she, because she's a, a at least a moderately prominent conservative, this Twitter barrage of hers elicited responses from some people who are pretty famous, one of whom was Soledad um, O'Brien, I guess is her name. She was she used to be uh, on, uh, I, I don't know, I think she hosted one of the, like Good Morning America type shows or Today or something. And the other was uh, Joe Lockhart. If you remember that name, he's a CNN guy, but he used to be basically the press secretary for Clinton, for President Clinton, Clinton administration. And so a couple of these pretty famous people on the left responded, oh, well, you are a grandma killer and we're going to call you a grandma killer. So there's, there's, this is just bad faith. I mean, there's no attempt here on either side to much understand the other. And, and we, have to, we have to look at this from a bad faith lens. I mean, we're, we're in post-persuasion America, I think. And, you know, Angelo Codavilla talks about this. I'm sure a lot of you know who he is. Tom and I follow him. He's a really interesting guy, retired professor, I guess, at Boston University. And he writes for Claremont. He's kind of a neoconservative with respect to his foreign policy, but he, Claremont has a newish website called American Greatness where he mostly pontificates now. And this is a sober guy, a serious guy. And I've written about him a little bit in the past because he came out with an article about called The Cold Civil War, talking about how even among someone who's uh, very much wrapped up in, let's say, the cult of Lincoln and American exceptionalism, as, as Mr. Cotevilla is, he still acknowledged that, hey, you know, this country may be headed for a breakup and we have to accept that. So I thought that that was interesting coming from a more mainstream conservative. And, and this uh, impulse he's feeling is, of course, been exacerbated by the COVID crisis. So he has a couple of articles recently where he brings up the fundamental rule of politics, uh, uh, alluding to Lenin, which is who, whom. And there's this statement that is attributed to Lenin, we're not sure about it, where he says, who will overtake whom? And so from Cotevilla's perspective, applying Lenin, politics is all about teams. It's all about sides. It's all about who's my guy and who isn't. So when you look at it that way, it really has nothing to do with policy. I mean, conservatives at this point could be out there for stimulus. They could be out there for any amount of Fed uh, facilities. They could be out there for any amount of spending, UBI. I think a lot of conservatives now are probably for single-payer health care. So it's not about issues. It's not about ideology nearly as much as it is about, you know, these are our kind of people. And those other people over there, those fat, tattooed, kid rock, beer belly, white Trump voters who are LARPing, you know, walking around the Michigan uh, Capitol with assault rifles. Those are not our kind of people. And that that's far more important than any policy or, or any ideological differences. In fact, if you sat down uh, some of the harshest critics of these militia types and the, and the militia types themselves who were protesting at the Michigan Capitol and started talking about, hey, uh, should this uh, new federal stimulus go directly to the poorest people? They'd probably both agree. Should we have uh, single-payer health care? Should we extend unemployment? All, all kinds of things. There'd probably be a wide agreement on that. So th this is cultural. This is about who and whom. Whose side are you on? And we see this amongst libertarians all the time. I, you know, I talked to some of my friends who were involved with the LP, and I said, look at some of these people— 
uh, saying these terrible things about the Mises Institute or, or whatever it might be. And I think, you know, do you really think that these people have your best interests at heart? Do you really think just because they call themselves a libertarian that they want prosperity and happiness for you and your family? No, they don't want that. They, they think you're wrong and they think you ought to pay for being wrong. They hate your guts. So why are you in a, in a party or a political movement with people who hate your guts? I mean, that, that's really what this comes down to. And so it's psychology, you know, that's, that's, it's really for the, the, uh, the psychologists to figure out why we are this way or why most of us are. So that's why, to me, I advocate a non-political approach to organizing society. I, I think politics forces us into these things. And whether it's nature or nurture, Doug Casey thinks it might be nature, that there's a, a genetic component to what makes someone more of a libertarian and less of a tribal political type. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But I think liberty ought to be a non-political approach to organizing society rather than another form of ideology. I don't think libertarianism is an ideology. I think it's, it's what happens when you leave people alone to their own devices, what organizes naturally, which we call a society. So you know, this is, this is awfully tough to overcome. And I think you're seeing it here. I think that's what's, that's the dynamic that you're seeing, which is, which is, you know, there's no, there's no reason necessarily that the left and right ought to have starkly opposing views on COVID and the lockdown, right? Because for instance, on the right in the red States, there's a lot of older people, a lot of Trump voters are older. A lot of Brexit voters are older. You think the older voters would be would treating COVID more seriously and saying, hey, this is real. We need to have a lockdown. Uh, Trump needs to have a national sh- policy. Uh, but you don't see that. So I, I don't have any other explanation other than every tribal impulse in politics that runs along, you know, the antenna of, of our reaction to all of this is just it, is at work. And it's intensified here because this is, this has, there's a nastiness to this. We're talking about people's livelihoods. We're talking about life and death in some cases. And we're talking about all this in the context of an election year. Let me add something else that I think plays at least a bit of a role for some people in their willingness to accept a more or less indefinite lockdown. Because for some activities to resume, we can't do them without a vaccine. Well, look... Who knows if a vaccine is going to work, if we're going to ever going to get one, if there, uh, there are a million possible objections to that. So what does that mean? Like whole, huge parts of things that we all loved, we can't have, or things that older folks who really do need to isolate themselves, they got to have. The young people are going to be deprived of those things because, because of a virus. I don't get that. I just can't imagine saying to somebody, you have to not only stay home, but you have to really take away from your life the things that you love in order to protect me because I can't just stay home. You know, why, why don't you just stay home and let other people live the one life they get? Anyway, I think there's, a, there's, the, there's also the fact that on the left, there is, at least among the naive people you see on Twitter, this idea that, of course, we can just shut down the economy for a while because the economy is just what, it's just dollar bills moving around. So we just print up some more of those and that'll help save all the businesses. And we can do that by just drawing on all the accumulated wealth of the rich people, which is just sitting there doing nothing. It's just in a big pile and they roll around in it until it sticks to their sweaty bodies and it serves no useful social function. So we can just raid that for a while. And so nobody really needs to suffer. There's just a big pile of money that we can either go grab or create 
you know, I mean, honestly, you think I'm not being fair to these people, then you haven't been on Twitter. They do think that. Oh, there's no question. I mean, they, their caricature of the rich is really pretty bizarre. And there are plenty of people who think that the wealth around us just organizes itself. It doesn't much matter what the incentives are. I mean, what's so incredibly frightening to me is the idea that we're going to just vitiate contracts. I mean, and not just leases. Obviously, there are a lot of folks in trouble in terms of their personal rent, and there are a lot of businesses in trouble in terms of their commercial rent. We get that. And the, the rational response to that would be to bring the parties together and let them work out a compromise because it's not in landlords' interest to just have mass evictions and then have empty rentals where they're making zero money. You know, if they just let the people go for a couple of months, they might start working again. You don't know. So, uh, but if you just say that we're going to put a moratorium on rental payments or even mortgage payments, that's a different thing. Then you, you know, the so-called rule of law becomes a very strange thing. And what's going to happen, of course, is that landlords of all stripes will be far more circumspect in the future and less willing to rent and less interested in being landlords and buying or, or making available housing stock or commercial stock. So that's not going to help anybody who needs housing to have less of it. But you know, beyond that, when you start to say courts aren't open, I mean, think about that for a second. Now, you and I might prefer a private sort of common law court system, but here we are. And you start to say, well, divorces are on hold and business litigation disputes are on hold. Obviously, evictions and foreclosures are on hold. All this stuff's on hold. And, and if you start to think about that, I mean, imagine if – imagine all the contracts out there where one party just says – well, I'm not going to live up to my expectations. I'm not going to pay what I said I was going to pay, or I'm not going to deliver the services I said I was going to deliver on this contract. And you say, well, wait a minute. You signed the contract. You have to do this. And if you don't do it, I'll sue you. And then they say, well, okay, go ahead and sue me, knowing that the courts are backed up six months. I mean, that basically, in effect, changes the terms of the contract itself because it, it alters the bargaining position of the two parties the one seeking to enforce the contract, the other seeking to get away with not living up to their contract. So, I mean, that is a staggering thing to consider. And that is going to have repercussions throughout the economy for a long time because every investor, every private equity firm, every venture capitalist, every small, uh, small deposit banking client, Every employee with a contract. I mean, everyone is walking around, Tom, thinking that there's sort of an implicit or explicit deal in America. There's a deal between me and my boss. There's a deal between me and my landlord. There's a deal between me and my bank. And if that deal is all of a sudden no longer there or backstopped in any way, whether that's by legal action or not, then think of how much quick, how quickly we're going to be impoverish ourselves. Think of how cautious everyone's going to be. I mean, that's a third world scenario. In the third world, you have people with lots and lots of wealth, tiny strata at the top, and then most people are quite poor by American standards. That's just that's you know what the third world means today. And the the rich people at the top with all the wealth almost uniformly have that wealth outside of their own country. I mean, they have some of it there. They have a big villa or something. But they don't leave their, their wealth there because they're afraid of just the scenario we're talking about. They're afraid if they invest in, you know, in, a big, in their company or something in, in their country, let's say El Salvador or Nicaragua, although both those countries are a lot better today, uh, that they, they might lose it. It might be nationalized or the contract they have to own property 
or to own a factory might be just vitiated by the government. The government might just seize the, the property. I mean, if you think about all the uncertainty that causes, it's, it's really staggering. And so not only are we, do we have an environment now where people have this strange attitude towards money and credit that, that either Congress or the Fed can just conjure it up and create more of it at whim, and there's not really much of a price to be paid for that. Oh, yeah, there's more debt, and maybe there's some inflation down the road, but for the most part, we can just do that. So you have this fantasy land thinking on the money side, but then on the personal responsibility side, the moral hazard side, you have this suspension of the rule of law. And that seems to me to be a very dangerous path to tread. And, and I think we ought to be thinking about that. I mean, how, what, what will it cost all of us if would-be contracting parties have to build in an extra layer of profit, let's say, to make up for the, the new risk that's involved in every contract? That's going to make all of us poorer because that's going to tie up more and more money in, in risk aversion rather than a creative enterprise. Let me be perfectly honest and say that I can understand where people who disagree with me on this are coming from. I genuinely can. And I think in their heart of hearts, they can understand where I'm coming from because there's something truly human on both sides of this argument. But when you're dealing with somebody who's arguing in good faith anyway, there is something human on both sides. On the one hand, there are people who are genuinely concerned. Are my day-to-day activities inadvertently harming other people? I mean, you know, who wouldn't be concerned about something like that? On the other hand, there are people who wonder about two things. One, that this new kind of lifestyle that includes lockdowns from time to time means other deaths caused by supply chain disruptions. We have UN reports about uh, massive famine potential. We have reports from the UK about more cancer deaths than COVID ones because of the diversion of health resources away from cancer prevention. So number one, we've got that to worry about. So it's not just that they care about lives and we don't. It's that we realize that there are a lot of complexities to this and a lot of lives at stake, not just the it's, it's what is seen and what is not seen. It's not just the COVID deaths. It's, it's other ones too. But secondly, what does it mean to live? What is life about? And to me, when they say, oh, well, don't worry, it's just no large gatherings for a few years or when, whenever they allow us, whenever they say there's, a, there's a, a vaccine. But large gatherings are like everything, right? I mean, you know, a, a concert is an incredibly life-giving experience. A giant family reunion a, a, a whatever, whatever it is, a, a, a big, a, a play, theater. These things are part of a, a really balanced human life. You know, a, a real human life is not being shut up in your house. And, and I think it's, it's really irritates me when people say, I'm sorry, but it does. People say, well, I've had, I'm having a great time during the lockdown because mm-hmm. I'm getting a lot of things done around the house and whatever. Yeah, you know, I'm happy for you. You know, I've, I have a cleaner house than normal too. Okay, uh, great. But if I were in the gulag, I wouldn't be saying, well, you know, at least I'm getting some fresh air. That is not the time to be saying that. So I guess what this boils down to is, do you see where I'm coming from when I say that there really are even – I'm leaving out the the really ideologically blind people. But just people who – they don't know what ideology they are. They don't know if they're liberals, conservatives, libertarians. They don't know any of this. They just know – there's a virus out there and I could be a carrier and I could hurt people and I'd like to do whatever I can not to do that. 
they won't necessarily give me the courtesy of trying to understand my perspective, but I get that. I understand that. And what do you think about that? Well, people across all ideological lines, and including non-ideological people, do have one thing in common, Tom, and that's that they're going at this from a utilitarian position. That's their framework. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, say, how many deaths is this going to cause? I think everyone would agree that if there were going to be a thousand COVID deaths, we ought not to have shut down the economy. And most people, not everyone, most people would probably say if there were 10 million COVID deaths in America, it was absolutely justified to shut down the economy. We should continue doing so until we figure it out. So the vast majority of people, including libertarians, are making these sort of utilitarian judgments. So it really comes down to how much economic damage is being done versus what's the real risk of deaths or, or at least serious illness and impaired lungs and all that stuff from the COVID virus. That's, that's really the calculation. Once you accept those terms, you're in a political world, I think, and that's just the way it is. I think you can argue that the lockdowns are unjustified purely on principle. I think you can say there's a difference between walking around outside, let's say without a mask and, and uh, sneezing or whatever you do, uh, and walking around outside spraying bullets out of a machine gun, which I think most people would say, even in a private society, uh, would be the kind of aggression that could be shut down by some sort of force, security force or whatever. Uh, the difference is that I don't think a potential is the same thing as an, as an actual. And I think we ought to have the courage to say, you know, if somebody's healthy and they're, they're out there living their life, they ought to be permitted to do so. And, you know, people who are not so healthy or old or whatever can make their own choices. I mean, that's, that's what we say in the abstract. It's not quite as easy in, in the tangible world. But I think the evidence is going to make it easier for us because I don't think this virus is everything it's advertised to be. And I think from the utilitarian perspective, we're going to find out that the shutdown causes way, way, way more harm, top to bottom, all kinds of harms uh, than this virus ever could. But the hard question for us, Tom, is could we look someone in the eye and say, even with a million deaths, I don't think the shutdown was justified. How about 5 million, 10 million? Uh, it's a conundrum. And at some point, <laughs> on some level, we're all utilitarians now because that's just, that's just the reality of it. But let's, but let's just recall that the reason the two tribes are at each other's throat is because everything is, in this country is political. When, when politics decides everything, then this is what you have to expect. So the argument for a less political world, maybe we'll never get to a non-political world, but for a less political world is an argument for greater harmony between people, social cooperation, understanding uh, of the kind that you're not seeing right now on Facebook and Twitter. Let me say one more quick thing before we wrap up. I posted a question on Twitter that was absolutely sincere and genuine. And it was simply this. If we could save 100,000 lives by eliminating music from the world, would we do it? And if we wouldn't do it, would it be fair to call us murderers? Now, the doomers won't answer the question. They'll say, well, we're just saying give up you know, live music for two months. Yet, no, you're not. You're saying give it up indefinitely, basically. But that's not what I was asking. I was asking just as a, th just as a hypothetical question, if getting rid of all music, recordings or, or whatever, because, I mean, you can live without music. You can physically live. No one's going to die without music. If you could save 100,000 lives by just absolutely getting rid of it, would we do it? And I don't think we would. 
And yet I don't think that makes us murderers. You know, but these are interesting questions to pose, but it goes to show that things like music and things like the kinds of things that are that are coming to an end right now are not optional extras. They are what makes human life. You're not preserving life. You're preserving, it's like Weekend at Bernie's. You're preserving dead people. You're preserving zombies if you're going to take these things away from us. I reproduced in my email newsletter the other day a report from somebody who had been on a webinar with some, I guess, professional associations of choirs that were basically saying no choir performances indefinitely because uh, we would need more tests and we'd have to be tested before every performance and we'd have to... And just like that, and you saw all these people commenting on it, yeah, I'm, I'm heartbroken that I can't sing anymore. Just like that, they're going to throw away the thing that gives them the most joy. They're just going to throw it away. I just can't imagine that's the right answer here. I can't imagine that's the right answer, even though I get that a lot weighs in the balance here. Living a subhuman existence can't possibly be right. No matter what the question is, I feel like that can't be the answer. All right. Well, do you, I'll let you have the final word, then we'll wrap up. Well, I think we can prove your point here very simply that a life totally stripped of any kind of ornamentation or consciousness is not a life worth living for a lot of people. And we know this because they have living wills and they've signed physician's directives that say, if I am, happen to be in a vegetative state, let's say from a car accident or something, please don't resuscitate me or use uh, extraordinary measures to just keep me alive in that vegetative state. Now, obviously being locked at home with Netflix is a long way from that. But it, the point here is that I think most humans recognize that there's some level of consciousness, some level of socialization with others. Uh, there's There's a point to which life would not be worth living. And, you know, I, I'm not pro-euthanasia, but I understand the argument and I think we acknowledge it and that, that uh, you know, just having a heartbeat and breathing oxygen in and out of our nostrils is not life. There's more to it than that. So then once we accept that, the question becomes, what's a life worth living? And that's awfully hard for anyone in Washington, D.C. or in any kind of centralized position to decide. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, folks, there's been some great material on this topic at the Mises Institute, so check them out, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, where our friend Jeff Dice is the president. Jeff, thanks for your time today. Thanks to everybody for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the Tom Woods Show because you're getting something like this every single weekday delivered for free to your device. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts over at TomWoods.com slash Apple, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.